This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. And then we have the text for the sermon, and really it connects back to verses 19 through 21, where they went into a house and the multitude comes and his friends come to lay hold on him because they think he is beside himself. Verse 31, there came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him, and the multitude sat about him, and they said unto him, Behold, thy mother and thy brethren without seek for thee. And he answered them, saying, Who is my mother or my brethren? And he looked round about on them which sat about him, and said, Behold, my mother and my brethren. For whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and mother. There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. There's tension here. There's tension, family tension. And it's not just a tension that's a difference of opinion on something important or unimportant, nor is it simply this, that Jesus has gone in a different direction than his family wanted for him. But this tension is spiritual opposition from his family. This is persecution, real persecution of Jesus. And if ever you've had to experience opposition from family on account of your faith, then you understand a bit this, this tension. That's much more difficult than opposition from an unbelieving world. And that's what we see here. That's what's going on. In Psalm 69, verse 8, we read this prophetically of, of the suffering Savior. I am become a stranger unto my brethren and an alien to my mother's children. This is Jesus here, stranger to his brothers. Verse 20 tells us that there was a multitude, throngs of people. The multitude cometh together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. We know this multitude as well. They have come together to see the great miracle worker. They want to see signs. They want to see miracles. This is the cause of the fame of Jesus now. And this fame makes it impossible for Jesus even to live a simple, ordinary life, to eat. And so verse 21, when his friends heard it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said, he is beside himself. Now, friends here doesn't refer to his disciples, but it refers actually to, to a more intimate relationship. Relatives is the idea. The people who were of him is the literal phrase here. There came then his brethren and his mother, and standing without, sent unto him, calling him. His mother and his brothers, verse 32. We can assume from that that by this time Mary is a widow, and she's here with his brothers. Jesus has, according to chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, at least six siblings. Now concerning these brothers of Jesus that come here, we know from the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verses 4 and 5, that they believed not. That means they didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And this is true of the entire ministry of Jesus, his brothers. 
Believe not. His mother and his brethren, his mother, Mary, is with them. And here, obviously, she's under the influence of her grown sons as they tried to stage a family intervention. Verse 21, he is beside himself. And the idea is he's acting so irrationally that he's going to end up hurting himself. He's gone mad. He's crazy. We need to intervene. So verse 21 says that those who were of him, probably his relatives, perhaps some of his own family members, they went out to lay hold on him. The idea is, is, is that they wanted to take him by force. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted to put a stop to his public ministry. And those in verse 21 who come to take him fail in that. So somehow his his family, his immediate family, his mother and his brothers are called in. Now Mark paints a picture of that for us in verses 31 and following. Jesus is in the house, verse 32. The multitude sits around him. So he's in the middle of them. They're sitting. The people have come in. The house is packed. Jesus is teaching. And Luke tells us in a parallel passage that when his mother and his brothers come, they stand outside, not because they don't want to interrupt his teaching, but because they can't get in because of the press of the people. They can't get any closer. And so they pass forward a word, a message to Jesus. And you can see them whispering through the rows to get the message forward to Jesus. One person passes it forward to the next till finally someone gets up and says to Jesus, In verse 32, behold, your mother and your brethren, your brothers are outside and they're here to see you and they want to speak with you. Jesus knows why they've come. He knows what they want to do. Verse 21, to take him by force. But at this point in the story, the the preaching of Jesus has stopped and everyone expects him to, to break off his sermon and to go and talk to his family. Especially because in, in this Hebrew culture, the, the family is a, a sacred institution. The, the bonds are very intimate. You would never refuse a request from the older generation. You would never refuse a request to speak to your mother. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't go and talk to his family. Instead, he does something quite shocking. Here he is, not Mary's son and Joseph's son, but God's son. And God has sent him to preach, and Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach by posing a question, a shocking question. Who, he says, who are my mother and my brethren? And with that question, he he challenges their assumptions about the intimate relationship of family. The assumption is that family always takes precedence. That's the assumption of those who, who sent for his family after their attempt to arrest him failed. That's the assumption of the family who stands now at the edge of the crowd. That's the assumption of those who pass the message forward to Jesus. His family is here. He's not listening to anyone else. He'll listen to his family. So you can imagine the surprise and the shock when these words of Jesus come out and they're passed back to his family. Who are my mother and my brethren? What did he just say? Did he just disown his family? Verse 34 tells us that at this moment, Jesus looked round about on them which sat about him. Now, this phrase is identical to what we read in verse 5. When he had looked round about on them with anger, there's a pause. And the idea of Jesus looking round about is that he looked at everybody. He turned 360 degrees. He did this with a a questioning look. In verse 5 it says that 
he did it with anger, being grieved for the hardness of their hearts. Now, he looks on them with the same kind of intensity, but not with anger, but love at his audience. He looks at them. Matthew adds to this that he extends his hand. He, he stretches out his hand towards them as he turns and gestures to those seated about him. Who are my mother and my brethren? And then he looks and he waves his hand. You catch the power of the moment, don't you? And then an imperative, a command. Behold, he says, look, look here. Don't crane your neck to see who's outside the family of, of this famous rabbi, a teacher. Don't crane your neck to see my mother and my brothers. But look here. Behold, he says, look here, my mother and my brethren. And then he says, those who do the will of God. Those who do the will of God. Those are my mother and my sister and my brethren. A murmur of amazement must have swept through the multitude, even though we have the advantage of the biblical perspective. Looking back on this, we understand how difficult these words must have been for Mary. She had nursed him and fed him and dressed him and loved him all the way to manhood. What crushing words. His brothers, imagine their anger. You just said what about your mother and us? We care. This is one of the hard sayings of Jesus. Jesus doesn't mean by this that blood family doesn't matter at all or, or that becoming a Christian means that we have to forsake all blood relatives. No, the scriptures themselves tell us that one who, who doesn't care for those of his own family, household, blood relatives, is worse than an infidel. That's an unbeliever. And we know that Jesus himself uh, keeps his family ties alive. From the cross, he makes arrangements for his mother's care. After his resurrection, he appears to his brother James, who later becomes the bishop of the church at Jerusalem. And Jesus certainly isn't telling us here that, that when we're unhappy in our family relationships, we can forsake those responsibilities and just retreat from them into, a, into some kind of peaceful isolation and find our solace there. No, it's those who do the will of God. There's a will of God for family living. The point that Jesus is making here is that there's a deeper relationship, a deeper kinship than flesh and blood. That being a member of the family of God should supersede all human relationships. That he has come to gather a new and a spiritual family, the ties of which are stronger and, and far more satisfying than, than earthly ties. He's saying that the earthly family is temporal, but this family, the family of God, is eternal. That belonging to this family will sometimes bring division with your earthly family, especially when you put God's will first in your life. You see, that's, that's where this has come to in Jesus' relationship with his family, what were they trying to do? They were going against the will of God for Jesus. They wanted to stop his work. Already at 12 years old, Jesus made this point to Joseph and Mary. I must be about my father's business. And he meant the work and the will of the Heavenly Father for him. And now they want to stop that, to stand in the way of God's will. That's why he characterizes his true family as those who, who do the will of God. Or as Luke has it, they hear the word of God and do it. They hear the word of God and do it. He doesn't mean by this that doing the will of God 
obedience originates our place in the family of God, that, that this is how you become a part of the family of God, by your obedience to the will of God, that we come into the family of God through being born again, regeneration. We come into the family of God by, by faith to as many as believed on him. To them gave he the privilege to be called the sons of God. We come on account of God's great work in adoption and God's eternal counsel in election. Those are the foundations and the entrance into the family of God. But Jesus here calls attention to a mark or an evidence in the believer that he's a part of this family. Whosoever shall do the will of God, the same is my brother and my sister and my mother. And he's saying of those who sit around him, these, these are my family, these know they're my family, as they do the will of God. The way of the obedient life is the way that we experience ourselves to be a part of the family of God. And Jesus is saying that this, rather than physical relationship, is the mark of family membership in God's household, the household of faith. And he's giving his audience, and, and especially now his family, as this message gets back to them, something to, to think about, to consider, to, to examine themselves. And he's saying, this is what my family members look like. This is what you'll look like as part of the family of God. Not perfect, but what's the difference between the people sitting around Jesus and his family at this point? Well, they hear the word. They love the word. They want with all their heart not only to believe the word, but also to do the word. That's the direction of their life. And that's because they love the Savior. And they love God who has sent the Savior. Does that describe you? Does that describe us as a church? Are we the family of God? So there's a a striking and and a searching question and response of Jesus here directed not only to his family and his audience, but to all of us. So what's the significance of all this? And I want to close with three points of application. The first is this, that as important as family is, you can make an idol of it. Family is important. And we say that not only because experience tells us that family is important, but but family is important because Scripture puts a premium on family. In the beginning, God brought Adam and Eve together as the first family. He gave them a family mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to bring forth children. The scriptures from the beginning to the end emphasize God's creation of and God's order for the family. They emphasize the responsibility of family members, the incredible importance of family from a spiritual point of view, the great blessing on those who fear the Lord in their family and in their home. And God's promise throughout Scripture is to gather His church in families, in generations. The promise is to you and to your children to gather believers and their seed. And all of this because God Himself in the Trinity, Father and Son, is a family God. But now as important as family is, you can make an idol of family. And you do that by making your family everything. The be-all and the end-all so that the four walls of your home become like the walls of a temple and everything gets sacrificed for the sake of your family, so that every involvement and every commitment and every engagement in your life is this, how will this benefit our family? How will this benefit us? And there can develop this kind of, as one of the commentators called it, familial narcissism, which in the end is destructive. 
We can make idols of good things. But in the end, idols always destroy their worshipers. So how do we make an idol of the family? Well, we do that with idealism. This is how my family's going to be. We do this with permissiveness, giving our children everything that they want. We do this with materialism, pursuing goals that are completely material or pleasure-focused with our children. We do this with indulgence. We do this, on the other hand, with an unwillingness to give of our family, to bring others into our family. Jesus warns against this when he says, He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. You see, the Scriptures don't call us simply to have close, intact, nuclear families, but to have families in which the will of God is first. For example, none of us can love our spouses perfectly. Only Christ can do that. But we love, and we love our spouses in a way that honors God, because we are first loved and because we first love Christ. That's true when it comes to loving our children, too. We, we must first love God and we must obey his will with regard to our children. And out of that love for God, we, we love our children, not spoil them, indulge them, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition. That's instruction and correction of the word of God. And that's true the other way, too. Children must love their parents. But that love for their parents is first a love for God. And because you love God, boys and girls, you obey your parents. And the the true relationship, the true fellowship that we have with our children is not simply in this, that they do what we want them to do, but in this, that, that their believing and their obeying is motivated by a love for God. Then there's fellowship with them. Then There's a relationship that transcends the earthly ties. And that brings us to the the second point of application here, and it's this, that discipleship always comes at a cost, and sometimes the cost is your own family and relationships with parents, brothers and sisters, and children. Now, it's important that we live with wisdom, that we live as peacemakers. We shouldn't unnecessarily alienate family members by our obnoxious, proud behavior. We must love and show love. We must pray for them. We must let them know and show to them the joy and the hope that we have as Christians. And certainly we shouldn't blame all our tension in family relationships on the fact that we are Christians. But nevertheless, we see here that being a believer will oftentimes cost us in regard to our family relationships. That's what we see right here with Jesus. His, his ministry was costing him his family. I'm become a stranger to my brethren and an alien to my mother's children, Psalm 69. And Jesus tells us repeatedly in the Gospels that this is a part of taking up a cross and following him. There's a very striking, even stronger passage in, in Mark chapter 10. Think not that I'm come to send peace on the earth. I came not to send peace but a sword, for I'm come to set a man at variance with his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And in this, and he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Are you ready to make... That kind of sacrifice, 
as a disciple of Christ. Some of you know exactly what that looks like, and you feel the pain of that. And there's a spiritual divide that, that makes it impossible to even sometimes talk to family, and that, apart from the intervention of God's grace, is going to result in an eternal separation from loved ones. And we should be encouraged here. We should be encouraged, first of all, because we shouldn't be surprised by this. If you're a faithful follower of Christ, Jesus says, they may even hate you. Don't be surprised. If people and family will think you're crazy, radical, too much into your religion. But the encouragement is this, that that Jesus had to go through this himself. The cross that we are called by Christ to bear is one that he carried himself. As dear as his mother was to him, he wouldn't allow her to stand between him and his obedience to the Father in going to the cross. And that becomes very clear at the end of his life when in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Mark 14, verse 33, Mark says he was troubled. And that word troubled has as its root meaning to be away from home, to be away from home, to be orphaned. And on the cross, Jesus bore the weight of, one commentator says, an eternal homesickness, an eternal forsaking, even of his heavenly Father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But let's not miss something here in the text, and that's the wonder of the words of Jesus, the the gracious wonder, the wonder of grace in the words of Jesus, the wonder of being a part of the, the family of God. As was said, there was probably some shock at what Jesus said here, but there must have been also an amazing peace and comfort and even surprise at the realization of what Jesus' words meant. Some of us don't have much family. Some of us have much sadness in our family. Some of us feel immense pressure because our home is Christian and and family just doesn't get it. And Jesus must have had here in his audience this day People who faced all the same struggles, the same alienation, the same loneliness, the same sacrifice. And what a beautiful thing when he paused for a moment and looked round about upon them, turned, gestured at them, and said, Look, look here. This is my family. You are my family. And that's what he says to us as believers today in the gospel. That's the good news here. In John 1.12 To as many as believed on him, to them gave he the right that is the privilege to be called the sons of God. You catch the the importance of the words of Jesus. You understood that you understand why this moment is so I'll say dramatically drawn out by Jesus. And praise God, his own family learns from it, as they too, in time, by God's grace, come to believe. Amen. The gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed Churches, feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.